was just an ordinary day and everything was going along smoothly. I was working here at the Des Moines Airport for Northwest Airlines as a customer service agent. Little did we know that in one minute everything would change. It was a Tuesday morning and it was crystal clear skies, like a beautiful September morning. And I was 14 years old, freshman in high school. And a friend of mine came up to me, saw on TV that there was a, a plane that hit a building in New York. I woke up to the call that one tower had hit. I immediately started to get ready because I knew work would be calling and sure enough, work called. Not many people had cell phones and the internet was not the way it is today. We had a TV back in the break room behind the TWA ticket counter. Stood there and watched it for a long time while I was still getting dressed and then saw the second plane hit the tower. Well, I was checking more and more people in for upcoming flights and I overhear that another plane had crashed into the Pentagon. And so at that moment, everything stopped at the newspaper and we put all our effort into getting the news out in a special edition. People were lined up outside the building of the register waiting to get that newspaper in their hands to understand what was going on. Because one plane hits and then the second plane hits and then we hear about Washington and then another one to Pennsylvania and we just had no idea what was going on next. The Des Moines airport was shut down. The air had never been that quiet. So many people were scared because it was just the unknown. We had never been through a day like that before. All aircraft in the air had to land at the closest airport. So we had planes literally en route all over the country landing here at the Des Moines airport. But we were walking to football practice and we looked up and we saw one plane in the sky and later realized that that was Air Force One flying from off at Air Force Base back out to Washington, D.C. And it was just an eerie feeling of not knowing what was gonna happen next. It's not like it was a hurricane and they were dealing with it. It was, we were all dealing with it at the time because it was, our freedom was in trouble. I was assigned to go up to the ticket counter and pull the jet bridge up to the planes. But before I did that, I had to say a prayer because at this time, aircrafts were being used as weapons against us. And so I wasn't sure what was gonna happen when I opened up that aircraft door. And in the newsroom was on the fourth floor and it was one huge room, over 125 employees sitting, working. And the parameter of the newsroom had um, television sets up. And we were there when the towers came down. And I will never forget that memory as long as I live, that the towers came down and over 100 people stopped, gasped, cried and then put their grief aside and kept working. I just saw the look in everybody's eyes and their faces I'll just never forget. Just deep despair, shock, disbelief, and fear. And so all I could say to all of them as I was looking down this row of all these people was to just say, God bless all of you. Good morning, Hope Ames. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor here at Hope Ames, and I'm just really glad that we get the opportunity to worship with you all. We're starting a brand new series this week. It's called Say What? We're looking at the most shocking statements that Jesus made, and um, I don't think that we could go through this weekend without talking about the shock and horror that a lot of us felt, if you were able to remember back then, 20 years ago yesterday. Where were you? Where were you 20 years ago yesterday if you were alive and if you can remember it? I know that some of you were not alive. Maybe some of you were not old enough yet to remember that. I think it's absolutely amazing to see how fast time flies by. When I look out at our Kairos congregation on Wednesday nights, I remember that, okay, like that group, probably none of them remember where they were on September 11th, 2001. But, but I remember where I was. Do you remember where you were? 
I was getting ready for school. Um, I was a student at Westridge Elementary in West Des Moines, Iowa, and I was in fourth grade, and we didn't start school until 9 o'clock Central Time, and of course it was before 9 o'clock Eastern Time that the first plane hit one of the Twin Towers. I remember walking into uh, my parents' room. Um, you heard in that interview there that my mom, she worked at the, uh, in case you didn't know, that was my mom in there. Her name's Sally. She was working at the airport, and so my dad was in charge of getting us ready in the morning because my mom was already at work by about 4 o'clock every single morning. And so my dad would get us ready, but, but he wasn't really around the house like he usually was. And so I walked into their bedroom, and he's just standing, pretty blank-faced in front of the TV, just confused, it seemed like. And I see that there's a tower, and it's, it seems like it's endured an explosion. And within minutes, there's another plane that's flown right into the side of its identical twin tower. It was shocking. Crazy thing for a nine-year-old to see. I remember driving to school, and I remember hearing my brother ask my dad, are we going to be okay? My sixth grade brother, I think it was the first time that I sensed fear in him, like real fear that I could sense in him on a bigger level than something that was happening in the neighborhood. I remember being at school, and I remember thinking about my mom, because I knew that she worked at the airport. And in my mind, there were her planes, and I wondered, was there something that was happening with one of her planes? And I started to wonder, is there something that might happen to her? It was scary. I remember feeling this sense of relief when I got outside after school and I saw my mom in the pickup line. I kept that relief to myself and I'm like, okay. Where were you? I remember after school we went to the church and we weren't the only ones there. This is a picture of uh, one of the services during that week, maybe that following weekend, um, when people were gathering just to pray. This is uh, our West Des Moines campus at Lutheran Church of Hope a couple of uh, renovations ago, if you will. And it was just jam-packed. People wouldn't stop showing up. For the first time in my life, I was starting to comprehend what people do when they come to the end of themselves. When they realize that maybe they're not as big as they thought. People were turning to God, whether they believed in God originally or not. They were seeking not just a God, but God. Someone who had power to combat the evil that we were seeing. People were looking for that. They were desiring that. The hard thing for me to, I think, swallow these days is to look back, and I think that as I remember that day so vividly, I also remember the times that have passed since then, and it feels like it, it went away pretty quickly. That feeling of, of seeking God, looking for someone who was bigger, because maybe it was a day, maybe it was weeks, maybe it's definitely been the years since people stopped looking for God, but instead started looking at one another, pointing the finger, finding someone to blame. Instead of turning to God, we started to turn against one another. Just trying to find someone that we could be mad at for something. I mean, my goodness, if we just look at the things that have happened recently. So there's September 11th, the picture of the aftermath in the top corner. But then these are things that are happening very recently. Of course, we've got the pandemic, which is in our face. And it feels like it's never going to end. You see images that are happening in Afghanistan where just... Hundreds of people are packing these planes just to try to get out because it's terrifying, the fear that they're living in. You see the aftermath of a terrorist attack on the air, in the airport in Kabul. And how do we handle it these days? Like, I'm not just a preacher who's trying to say, like, oh, you need Jesus, you need God. I mean, yes, you, you, you do need Jesus. I need Jesus, too. But, I mean, like, our souls are crying out. And when our souls aren't crying out to the right thing, they start to act out, don't they? And sometimes we start to act out against one another. So where are we today? 
Remember where we were, but where have we gone? Where are you today? Have you ever thought about that question, where are you? It's a relatively new question, isn't it? I've said this before in a sermon, but I always go back to it. Where are you is a relatively new question. Because before the invention of telephones, at the very least, we didn't have the capability of talking to people unless we had a general idea of where they were, even when they invented the telephone. If you had a call from a landline to a landline, you had a general idea of where that person was. So we didn't just ask the question, where are you? Now, of course, today you send a text message. You call on a phone like, hey, where are you? Maybe sometimes you can find out pretty quickly where people are because if you've got your parents on Find My Friends, they know exactly where you are at all times. And even when you're 29 years old, they ask, hey, Danny, why were you driving at 5 in the morning? What's going on? It just... My goodness, I'm married, I have a wife, we have a life. <laughs> but where are you? It, it, it's a relatively new question. And yet the first question that we have recorded in the Bible of God asking humanity, it's where are you? It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. It's a heartbreaking story. Where are you? God's walking through the garden. This perfect place as the Bible expresses the beginning of creation. Where are you, God says. It's a sad story because humanity had just fallen into sin for the first time. And I think that it's not sad just because I'm looking back. I'm like, how dare you? How could you do that? But I think it's because I can relate to humanity. <laughs> I am human. You are human. This is a story about us. I know what it's like to feel so ashamed. I know what it's like to hide behind the trees. Why is God asking, where are you? The characters that are given the names in the story, it's Adam and Eve. They've fallen. They've disobeyed God. So now they're feeling that shame. Have you ever felt that shame? Have you ever been so disappointed in yourself that you're beyond the point of not necessarily believing you deserve love, but you're beyond the point of even wanting love? It just feels so taboo to you in that moment. Like, no, no I can't be around this. I remember when I was a kid, um, my neighbor down the street, I cannot remember her name right now for the life of me. Even when I was reading this, I'm like, what is her name? And I couldn't remember it. Um, but so... But we knew her as a, as a gardener. So in this sermon, I'm just going to call her the gardener. Um, she lived like four or five houses down the street. And we had so many kids on our block. Pleasant Street. Oh, my goodness. It was like heaven on a street for a kid. And uh, this gardener was down the street. And she didn't have any kids living in the house. She had children, but they grew up and they moved away. And she was getting older, I suppose. Uh, in my mind, like when you're like eight, you think like 60s. 90, and then you realize, like, wow, my parents are getting close to that age. It's not old at all, you know, but nonetheless, in my mind, this was like a great, 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 great grandmother, right? Because that's just the way that you see the world when you're eight, you know? And so, like, I don't know why, but, like, children are just kind of drawn to that, like, that, that just kind and compassionate spirit, and, and she uh, didn't have children living at home anymore, but she had that motherly sense, and so we'd want to be around her, and she had this passion for gardening, and like, I mean, on any given day in the summer, there'd be like five or six kids at any given time in her backyard with her helping her garden. She'd grow vegetables, she'd grow plants, she'd grow trees. It was so much fun. The gardener, she was awesome. And one day she asked me to go to the front of the house and grab a, um, a pot that was probably kind of similar to this and it had soil. She said, hey, we need the soil from that pot. Um, we're going to use the soil back here. Okay, perfect. So I go around front, I grab the pot, and, I, and I'm walking around back, and maybe I'm not paying attention. I don't know. I'm like eight years old. And so I fall, and like the entire pot just... And when you're eight, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. 
It's just the worst. Anything embarrassing, right? Sorry to our band. I just realized they're going to have to come out here again. <laughs> While they're singing the closing song, I'll just be, don't look at me. <laughs> but I, I, I spilled it. I'm like, oh, no. And it wasn't just a little. I mean, it was the entire pot of soil. I'm like, oh, I ruined it. I ruined it. And then I hear the footsteps of the gardener coming around the house. I'm like, no. I'm like, where do I hide? Where do I go? I jump in the bushes. I don't think she had bushes on the side of the house, but I was so scared. I felt that shame. I felt that embarrassment. I know that it's on a small level, but I think that it represents how we feel. Like when we drop it, when we spill, maybe it's sometimes when somebody spills on us. We feel gross. We feel like we have to hide. And then we hear the gardener coming. We say, I've ruined your soil. I don't want to be around you. Humanity, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they hear God coming as if he's coming around the house and he's going to see what they've done. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid. And I think it's the saddest verse in the entire Bible. To hide from love. God is walking through the garden. He's asking, where are you? Why is God asking, where are you? I mean, God's God. No, he didn't have a phone. He didn't have find my friends. He didn't have the apps that could tell him where Adam and Eve were. He knew. He's God. You can't hide from God. We have stories about that all over the Bible. You read Jonah, right? Where are you? I, I know where you are. You're in the bushes. I see you. Come out. But isn't there something beautiful about a God who gives us the chance to respond? About a God who comes and looks through the trees anyway? God could stay far away, but God says, I'll walk through the garden and find you anyway. Adam and Eve, they know that God's there. And it's interesting the way that they know that God's there. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, that's how they heard God walking. It was, they could simply hear the breeze. Now the word there for breeze in the biblical Hebrew is ruach. Everybody say ruach. If you've been around Hope for a little while, I'm sure you've heard this word in a sermon because I think it's like every single pastor's favorite word because we say it and then you have to wipe the spit off the person in front of you. But ruach, one more time. Ruach, it means wind, it means breeze, it means breath. And it is also the word that is used for God's spirit. God's presence was as palpable, as known, as obvious as the wind in the garden. They simply felt the breeze and they knew God was there. God was present. Oftentimes we ask to each other, where are you? Oftentimes someone asks to us, where are you? But how often do you ask God, where are you? It is in the aftermath of a horror. It's in the midst of a pandemic. It's in the midst of like wars that are happening around us. It's in the midst of feeling some brokenness in our own homes. It's in the midst of not knowing what's going to come at work tomorrow. It's in the midst of not feeling like we can finish all of our deadlines. It's in the midst of not knowing what's happening in the future and just feeling lost and little and like we've dropped the soil. We're asking God, where are you? Are you far away? Do you care? Are you showing up in my garden? Where are you? I think one of the saddest things that we can do is we believe that God is distant. 
We can believe that we have to hide when God shows up because God hasn't already seen those places. God wasn't near to us when we spilled the soil. We think that God was far away and now he's going to show up and find out. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make as children of God is to think that God's far away. Think that God is cold and God is distant so we scream, God, where are you? You know, it's one thing to ask God, where are you? But where God is is very secondary to who God is. If God is cold and rigid, it would be good if God is far away, right? But if God really is love, if God is good, well, then it would be important for God to be close. So secondary to where God is, is who is God? Jesus knew both of those. Jesus would know where God is, but Jesus also knew who God was. And when Jesus says, here's how I want you to talk to God, here's how I want you to name God, here's how I want you to address God, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, this is how you should pray. Talk to God like this. Start by saying, Father. Not far away. As close as a father. And I think that today, we hear that and it shows up all the way throughout Scripture. We think like, okay, well, yeah, God's a father. Like, or sometimes God's compared to a mother throughout Scripture. Like, God's this parent. Like, that's good. I can wrap that in my mind. But we get a little bit desensitized to it, don't we? And maybe sometimes on the bad end of it, maybe you had a bad experience with a father. And so you hear father and you think, no, 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 that's bad. But back in those days, people would have been entirely shocked, thrown off guard, I mean, on the floor, uh, offended when Jesus would have said, call God Father. Go ahead and open up your Old Testament. Read throughout all the stories. People will describe God as a father. People will describe God as a mother. People will describe God as this parental figure. But nobody actually calls God to God's face when they're talking to God, Father. Nobody has the audacity to do that. There's no way. You have to have more reverence to God than that than to be so intimate with God. You can't do that. God is the one who comes into the garden and says, where are you, right? God is the one when we're at our worst, we scream, where are you? I thought it was interesting. You might be surprised by this, um, but uh, uh, Gallup research found that still 87% of people who live in this country believe that there's a God. Like, they believe that there's some higher power. Like, that's, that's surprising, right? Because it feels like, oh, yeah, this is a godless generation. I don't know that it is. Now, interestingly, also, 80% of people say that they pray somewhat regularly. Which, some people in the church would be like, I haven't prayed in, like, years, but, you know. 99% of people said that I would pray if I was in a desperate situation. And maybe you could say, well, I mean, yeah, those, that's how you act when you're not human. No, that's how you act when you're most human. You find out what's in your basement when you surprise it. My wife and I, we, uh, we had to call a Terminator uh, in the last couple of, A Terminator? Not a Terminator. <laughs> <Huh>. What? What? <laughs> yeah, old Arnie Schwartz came in. He's <laughs> like, man, wow, I'm glad I noticed that. That would have been weird. <laughs> We had, to call in, we had to call a spider killer. We'll call it that much. <laughs> because we, uh, we have spider... We, we, got a ho- we own a house for the first time. And, and uh, we, have, uh, we got spiders in our basement. Like, big ones. And, like, I'm supposed to be killing them and stuff. And I'm the kid who grew up with, like, the little plastic baggie. And I, I would, like, get the spider in the bag and... And then send it outside and say, live, live. And then my mom told me, like, it's going to freeze to death out there. You should just squash it, you know. 
scarred me, ruined me, you know. But uh, we have spiders in our basement. But you only find the spiders when you walk downstairs, like, unannounced. If I'm down there for a while, and I realize, oh yeah, I should look for a spider. They're all disappeared. I hate it. But if I walk down there unannounced, it's like they're having their little party. Like, ah, we got to scram. You, you want to know like, what's, in the soul, what's in the basement of your soul? You want to know what your soul really longs for, what it really needs? You surprise it. And so when we're shocked, when we're disturbed, and when we're scared, and we pray, it makes you human. It reveals what your soul's really looking for. Your soul's not looking for someone to blame. Your soul's looking for comfort, for help, for love, for a preserver of your life. Here's why it was so shocking for Jesus to say, call God Father. In that culture, in that day, the word that's a sign that Jesus used for Father here is pater. Pater. Pater, yeah. You can say it. Okay, great, awesome. Um, and it literally means one who imparts life and is committed to it. Kairos students, you'll recognize this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. One who imparts life and is committed to it. In those days, a father's livelihood was based on the livelihood of their children. Once a person had children, if their children weren't in good shape, their life was in ruins. If their children lost their life, there was no reason for that father to continue to pursue life anymore. The father is the one who imparts life and is committed to that life. The father is the one who would do anything. The father is the one who would lay down their life. The father is the one who would go out, find whatever food they had to bring, bring it back, provide for the family, because everything in that father's life was committed to preserving the life of their children. And Jesus is saying, that's who God is. That's the kind of father that God is. When you're talking to God, call him dad. Not the one who let you down. Call him dad. The kind of dad that you deserve. That's who God is. And before you can know where God is, it's so important to know who God is. And God is your loving, gracious, caring father who has given you life and will do everything to preserve your life. It gets even deeper than this. Now, the Bible in the New Testament, it's written in Greek, but Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and the word that Jesus often used in Aramaic to describe God was Abba. Everybody say Abba. Abba. Now, in English, oftentimes the first word that children or babies will say, according to my pediatrician brother-in-law, who's much smarter than me, he'll say, okay, like oftentimes it's Dada, and the reason for that is because it's such an easy word to say. It's not maybe because the child even realizes that they're saying Dada, and I know it kind of ruins it for us, right, but... But they say it without even realizing they're addressing their father. They say, Dada, it's just easy for them. And in the same way, that's what the word Abba meant. Can't you almost just hear a child, a baby, saying, Abba? And so you've got Jesus, who's like in his early 30s, and he's walking around, and he's saying, Dada. What? You're supposed to be cool, Jesus. Aren't you the guy who walks on water and you're sitting around here? You're 30 years old, man. Like, dada. <laughs> and Jesus is saying that's the kind of intimacy you ought to have with God. That you might not even know the word you're saying. But God knows you're his child. 
Hmm. It is so beautiful to be loved and cared for. To have someone lay down their life for you. I saw an image that I cannot get out of my head. This is from Afghanistan. Can you imagine? I know that we look at, I mean, don't, like, heroic efforts by the soldiers. I mean, heroic efforts to do what they're trying to do. But then there's the faceless hero at the bottom who's like, I love this kid so much that, like, I'll get out of the way if that's what it takes for my child to live. That's, that's the kind of dad you have in God. I'll do whatever it takes to preserve your life. God's a gardener. God has the ability to create life. Out of something as ugly and gross and messy as dirt, God can create life. When I was really scared about um, how the gardener in my neighborhood was going to find me, she comes around and I hear her and I want to hide or whatever. And she wasn't, like I, don't, like, I don't remember exactly, but she wasn't bothered at all that I spilled the soil. For her, it was just, okay, you spilled soil, so grass will grow there. Fine, we'll just spread it out a little bit. More life can come in that place. God's a, God's a dad who's a gardener. And when your life has collapsed and all there is is just a big old dust cloud piling over your life, God can preserve that. And so I don't want, and I know that this is hard. I know that this is hard. But Wherever your dad or your mom fell short for you, Jesus says, my, my dad is not like that. The father you have in heaven is a perfect father, a perfect mother, who will preserve life and bring life even out of the dirt. Jesus had died, right? And uh, there's this famous story about Mary going to the tomb and she's wondering, where is Jesus? Where is he? Where is he? Oh my goodness, where is he? His body's gone. And then when it says that Jesus approached Mary, she thought he was a gardener. And I, I never looked at it like that before. John, the author of this book, is a very artistic writer. And loves to weave things together. She thought he was the gardener, and I think she was right. Jesus' life had collapsed, it was over. And yet he grew. It's like a seed that they planted, and he was watered, and he raised back to life. And he comes out and he says, in the most shocking circumstances, I've been killed. You think that my life is over? And he approaches the disciples and he says, peace be with you. On the next slide. Peace be with you. 
He says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus didn't just come back to life from the dirt. He came back, from life, he came back to life from the dirt to give you life, to send you up, to send you out. Jesus says, I am imparting you. I am giving you life. I am preserving life, and I'm going to continue to preserve life through you. This is the beautiful thing. We believe that God only says, where are you to get mad at us? God doesn't say, where are you to get mad at us? I believe that God says, where are you? So maybe sometimes we realize where we've been and instead where God wants to bring us. When God says, where are you? God is loving us back into relationship with him. God says, where are you? Because he loves the sound of our voice when we speak to him. God is not in a bad mood when you speak to God. God is in a good mood when you speak to God. In the same way that a good parent is in a good mood when their children speak to them. Whether they've done right or wrong, The important thing is that the child has gone to the parent. Who is God? God is your father. God has shown up for you. God has sent his only begotten son into this world to come into this place and to say, where are you? Where have you been? But also now, where will we go together? Isn't that incredible? It's this singular question of where are you? And it makes us feel isolated and alone and scared. But Jesus says, well, now let's go somewhere together. Let me pick you up from the dirt and let me use all those things to, nutri- to, to give you nutrition and to give you life, to raise you back up. And now let's go somewhere together. Just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. You're not going alone. Where are you? Well, I'll tell you this much. Wherever you are, Jesus has gone too. And it's amazing how hope shows up in those places. Jesus would have the audacity to say something as shocking as, peace be with you. Peace be with you. 20 years ago, yesterday, and then the week after that, we had all these prayer services, and it was incredible to see, um, it was incredible to see the hope that arose in these hopeless places. And rather than just tell you all about it, I want you to take a look um, at this next clip that'll summarize a little bit of what we saw in our church. It was a sense of fear. We had no idea what was ahead of us. But I also would say in the days that followed, there was a sense of unity, a sense of unity that we, you know, scripture says there's uh, no Jew or Gentile. Um, We are all one in the body of Christ. I don't know that ever before or ever since we've had a day of such unity. Of, of people who were scared, looking for answers, rallying around the flag, but also seeking out their faith, realizing life is short. It can be taken away from you in, in a heartbeat. And it was just this wake-up call that said we need to be thankful for what we have and we need to concentrate on what's most important in life. I think that's probably been my big, biggest experience in the military. Sometimes conflict brings about the best unity at the back end. And, Uh, How a lot of people are brought to faith on the back end is going through crisis together and having kind of a shared purpose. Everybody was looking out for everybody at that moment. And I felt that that at the airport too. I felt like you would find people just saying, I'm going, you know, I'm headed to Omaha. Anybody need a ride? Another person, I'm headed to St. Louis. You need a ride. I mean, people 
We're willing to help complete strangers. A lot of people were going to church services downtown, out in the suburbs, all over the country. Everyone was looking for those answers. And I remember a couple days later going to Hope and talking to Pastor Mike about all of the people going at these almost emergency prayer sessions that were popping up over noon hours. I headed over to the church to find Mike and he was in a staff meeting where they were already planning a prayer service for people to come and which I thought was a great thing because I knew how bad everybody needed God at that moment. But we had a lot of services and um, a lot of people came to every one of those services. There was a lot of heavy emotion in those. We just needed to react. We needed to be there. We needed to know that God was still with us. I was so grateful because it, you can imagine the intensity of what we felt at the register and the responsibility and exhaustion that we felt. And as a young leader, I felt that on my shoulders. But to walk into the worship center, I'll never forget that feeling. And being able to release it, just being able to release it to God and know we were gonna be okay. We were gonna be okay. And to hear Mike's message. Um, I mean, I can remember watching Mike and knowing the weight that he had on his shoulders. And then he got up and started to preach and it was like he was being held in God's hands. First, I wanna uh, say thank you to this church, to all of you for your outpouring of love and support and your prayers for uh, families and friends, the victims of this great tragedy in our nation this past week. Probably uh, the thing that's still standing that tells the story is the cross that's just directly back. I think he was led by God to know exactly what to say and exactly what to do and how to handle the situation because there was no manual for anybody to go through September 11. There was fear, but we did know that God was with us. And so putting our faith and letting your faith be stronger than your fear was a huge way of trying to deal with it. We were in the news business. People were looking to us to give them information and context. But hope was in the good news business. People turned to hope for just that, for hope and reassurance that we would get through this and all would be well in the end. I think it was just a testament to how the church is the light of the world. In times like this, we have maybe the greatest opportunity, um, you know, when we're most vulnerable um, to, to be, be that light that God calls us to be. When people's hearts are maybe most open to hear the truth of God's love and what He did for us. I remember that sermon that my dad preached in it. He said something that just astounded me. It was that the light continues to shine through this dust cloud that started in New York City and seems to have uh, shadowed over our entire country and many parts of the world. But the light still had this audacity to shine. And Jesus says to us, when your light doesn't work anymore, I'll, I'll shine for you. And people are going to look. People are going to be watching. I'm going to finish up the sermon today just by a quick illustration that we'll go into a little bit of a sending piece. But did anybody uh, see the football game yesterday? Um, I've got a friend who's a part of this church who uh, let me sit next to him, and this is the closest I will ever be to a big-time football game, uh, but nonetheless still in the stands. And people are watching these players. And sometimes people are really unfair to these players. 
I will say, like, I'm as passionate as anybody in the stands. I mean, if you happen to be sitting around me yesterday, you saw me jumping, you saw me, saw me shouting, you saw, you saw me screaming. Um, but there were also some hurtful things that we hear, right? Like, oh, bench him! That's the worst play call I've ever seen! You know. I just, I, I do want you to know that there are several of those football players who are part of your church family, and I ask you to talk about them the way that you would want other people in your church family to talk about your kids. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, what if you got called in? Be pretty scary, wouldn't end very well, because you're not six foot five and 240 pounds likely. But um, what if you got called in? I mean, my goodness, there are so many people in the stands yesterday who were like, I know how to fix this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, college football is this. It's, it's uh, 22 uh, people on a field in desperate need of exercise being screamed at by 50,000 people. Dang it, I messed it up. It's 22 people on a, screen, on a football field who are in desperate need of rest being screamed at by 50,000 people who are uh, in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> I didn't make that up. There's a coach from Oklahoma who said that. I can't remember his name, and he doesn't deserve to be named because he's part of a trader school. So um, <laughs> I need to work on it. Oh, I need grace in my heart. What are you preaching, Danny? What are you preaching? You know. Um, but even more importantly than a game that you could be called into that, quite frankly, you might not actually provide any help for whatsoever, Jesus has said, I'm calling you into this game. I'm calling you into the resurrection business. People are going to be watching. There is a world out there. It's way bigger than the amount of people that can fit inside Jack Trice Stadium. And they're watching and they're waiting and they're wondering, what are you going to do? Where, not, not, where have you been? Fine. Where are you? Okay. But where will we go together? Jesus has called us into this. And so let me show you this on this next screen. You are in the game. Here's just, I mean, off the top of my head, list of things that you can get involved in, ways that you can serve, ways that you can find community. Have you taken advantage of one of these things yet? Today at the end of the sermon, we're not going to have necessarily a response song. The band's going to come out and play like this really fun song that's inviting you into the game. You can sit around, you can enjoy it, you can dance, you can clap and sing along and all that stuff if you want, that's fine. But we're not having necessarily a typical response song because I want you to go out and visit the tables on the way out so you have this extra time and sign up for something. Get involved in something. Maybe you're not ready to serve, but it's time for you to get involved in community that will eventually build you up into a place where you feel like, okay, now I'm ready to serve and now I'm ready to go because Jesus is calling you into this game. The list is long. The ways to get involved, I mean, it's countless. This isn't even all of them. And we're going to have really easy ways for you to get plugged in when you're walking out today. Please do that. Please do that. But know this. You are not going to those places alone. Let me show you this last verse from the reading that you heard from this morning. It says that Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them. He breathed on them. Do you recognize it? The breath, the wind, the breeze, the ruach, God's spirit. Jesus just breathed on them and he said, okay, now take the Holy Spirit. Take me with you wherever you go. Where are you is one thing. But imagine all the places that we will go together. Jesus is inviting you to that. 
I want you to be a part of that. Not because I just want you to be a part of making hope bigger. That's not what we're about. We're about pointing people to Jesus. We are kingdom of God people. We're not performing for a stadium. We're filled up on life from the eternal God. He says, there's a world out there who needs to hear about my grace, who needs to receive my love, who needs to know that there is a perfect parent out there who knows their name. And when they are uttering things that they don't completely understand, I hear them. So church, you're in. You're in. So I'm going to say this early today. Go in peace and serve the Lord. You know what to say. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Stand up. Enjoy this song. Stand, sign up on the, on the tables and on your way out. Pick up your kids. Um, but get in the game, church. Jesus is calling you in. Amen? Amen. Amen.